You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, so let's jump in today. Last week, we kind of walked back through the book of Revelation, and I gave you some reminders that come out of the first 16 chapters. I challenged you from an application standpoint for you yourself to go back and reread Revelation 1 through 16 to do it all in one sitting and to write down things that kind of jumped out to you, not things that you went back and looked at from notes that I've given you, but they're just things that jumped out to you by reading the text. I believe that, I hope at least, that you're more comfortable with the book of Revelation the more that we've spent time in it and that hopefully you can read it now and be encouraged by it without having to have a bunch of charts and notes and outlines in front of you. And so uh, I would still encourage you to do that if you haven't done so already. Today, like I said, Revelation 17 and 18 talks a lot about sexual immorality and the world being drunk on that. And so I want us to be on the same page about what we are talking about. So our notes are available in our Google Drive folder. If you want to access that through our bulletin, you can always access all of our sermon notes. But our summary sentence for today Christians are called to remain sexually pure both in thought and action as an outworking of the gospel in their life for the glory of God. Christians are called to remain sexually pure both in thought and action as an outworking of the gospel in their life for the glory of God. We're going to see early and often today that our sexual purity is tied to our understanding of the gospel And it is directly connected to our ability to bring glory and honor to God with our lives. Um, They they, they go hand in hand, right? We can't can't really live out the gospel and be um, actively involved in sexual immorality. They're contrary to each other. We can't call ourselves a Christian and believe that our lives are bringing maximum glory to God if we're involved in sexual immorality. They don't go together. They're contrary to each other. Okay, so what I want to help you see today, in light of everything we've talked about in Revelation, right, the call to repent of our sins, to be truthful people, to be sexually pure, to be people who fear God and honor God, it really comes back to one of the main areas being the way that that we reflect God's rightful design for sexual relations, okay? So Christians are called to remain sexually pure, both in thought and action, as an outworking of the gospel in their life. As you continue to write that down, some introductory notes. Uh, Our sexual desires that God gives to us, they are God-created, and they are earthly satisfying when acted upon correctly. Sexual desire isn't a bad thing. Um, And we're going to see in a little bit, when we get into the book of Corinthians, the, the Corinthian people, they were so confused about this topic They were in a culture where it was being abused and rampant in such a way that was just dishonoring to God. They become believers, and they're like, wow, we need our minds transformed. Like, we don't even know what to do with this topic. I mean, is is sex just bad in general? Do we need to avoid it? I mean, there was even the the potential discussion about husbands and wives not, not having sex anymore because it was wrong and evil before God. And so Paul has to write and correct a lot of that misunderstanding, okay? Um. It's a good thing. God creates it, right? God gives us these desires, and they are earthly satisfying. And I I stress that piece because Jesus, I think, is pretty clear that this isn't happening in the the eternal life, that that men and women aren't given to each other in marriage like they are here on this earth. Um, We're not talking about these desires down the road, okay? And so it's earthly satisfying here and now when acted upon correctly. 
Satan devalues each gender when it comes to this topic by teaching men that women are a pleasure to enjoy or a toy to enjoy, and by teaching women that man can be manipulated. Man, that is rampant in the pornographic industry right now. Um, that, that women are to be viewed as a toy and men are to be viewed as something to manipulate. Um, and, and that's very clear in the ads. If you're, if you're searching the internet and something pops up, it's pretty clear in the ads. Man, one of my, one of my least favorite parts of my job in, in trying to stay relevant and up to speed with education, giving our kids Chromebooks and having the security to monitor it and realizing that there are evil people that sit in basements and figure out how to help middle school kids get around security to look at stuff. And when that happens, I'm immediately alerted to it, and I have to click on the screenshot to see what this kid's been exposed to to determine how bad it is and whether his parent needs to know about it. I automatically get exposed to stuff that I don't want to see because our kids sometimes innocently are searching things that should be funny to a middle school kid. I had a kid this week that searched something that, if I said it, you would think, man, that's just, that's immature to search that, but it certainly, you wouldn't think it would conjure up something sexual, and it did, and he was exposed to something really bad, um, because somebody decided, you know what, this will be funny to name this website this, a middle school student is probably going to search this, and then we expose them to this, and we hook them with this. Man, Satan distorts it, and he wants our boys, our young men, to believe that women are to be enjoyed like a toy. He wants our women to believe that this is how you manipulate a man and get what you want from a man. It's a complete perversion of what God designed for this to be. Sexual immorality is birthed from a lustful desire to have what God has forbidden. It's birthed from a lustful desire to have what God has forbidden. It's a longing for what you don't have and you can't have. Exodus 20, 14, seventh of the Ten Commandments, it says that we shall not commit adultery, right? That we're not to break the sexual relationship within the confines of marriage, all right? The Tenth Commandment says don't covet your neighbor's wife, right? Like you, you, may, you are not allowed to act upon your lustful desires by committing adultery, and you are not to even have the lustful thoughts towards your neighbor's wife where you crave something that you do not have. Two quotes to share with you, one by Joshua Harris, one by John Piper. Lust is craving sexually, what God has forbidden. Lust is sexual desire minus honor and holiness. Satan's temptation is for us to go outside of God's parameters for this relationship, to go outside of God's guidelines, and to try to find satisfaction that God has already offered to us. Man, I want to take you back to our study in Genesis. Remember? I told you I grew up believing that God, I never wanted to admit this, but in my mind it was like, why did God make that tree of knowledge and good and evil so good looking? Like, why, why does the text describe it as being so delightful to the eyes, something that was delightful to taste? Why would he do that and make it so hard for them to say no? And again, in my mind, all the other trees had broccoli on it, and this tree had, had the greatest fruits dangling from it right? Like candy was coming off of this tree and everything else was all the vegetables that you didn't want to eat. But I showed you as we went through verse by verse and we, we got away from just looking at story by story, we looked at verse by verse and it says that, that God created every tree in the garden to be good to the eyes and good to taste, right? Like they were all good and God said, just don't eat of this one. But he wasn't withholding anything. All the other trees tasted good too. All the other trees looked good too. Right? And so Satan's ploy, Satan's device is to come to us and to make us believe 
that God has boxed us in, and if we step outside of his parameters, that's where true satisfaction is. That, that his parameters aren't satisfying, it's outside the parameters where we find real joy. And that's, that's what's at battle and at stake for us every single day in this topic area. Every single day, we have to wake up and decide, do we believe what God says about this, or do we believe the lies of Satan about this? Because that's the ploy. It's to convince us that God can't be trusted in this area. Some general guidelines for us to accept as we get into this topic today. Number one, our cues about sex and marriage are rooted in God's creative design. There's 39 verses in the ESV translation that use the word sexual immorality. We're going to see all of them in some capacity today. So at times we're going to go faster than other times to make sure that we cover everything that I want to share with you today. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered him, or he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus kind of corrects the Pharisees in, in their flawed thinking right off the bat. They said, doesn't the law, or doesn't basically Moses' law instruct us about divorce and marriage? And God says, whoa, 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 let's back up even further. Let's go all the way back to the beginning because it's really about how I created things. It's not about the law that comes later. It's about how I created things. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, the same rings true. This is how God designed it. This is how God instituted it. It's by creative design, not by human tradition, not by things that we developed or added later. It's from the very beginning that Jesus takes them back and says, here's where we take our cues about marriage. Here's where we take our cues about divorce. Here's where we take our cues about the sexual relationship in general. It comes from the way that I created things. Okay, it's important that we recognize that going into this topic. Our cues about this topic come from God's creative design. Number two, marriage is primarily a gospel picture of Christ's love for the church. It's not about you and your satisfaction. It's about the gospel and it's about Christ's love for the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When Paul says the whole reason that, that we have man and woman, husband and wife, marriage, it's to picture, it's a visual, earthly representation, a picture of what Christ and the church is meant to look like. Uh, Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, two chapters that we're going to get to really soon in Revelation, both of them describe Jesus' return and him being reunited with his bride. All right? Marriage is a picture in Scripture of Christ and the church. That's important because when we get into the topics of divorce, Man, when we keep our mindset set on the fact that this is about the gospel, 
man, it, it changes some of the emotions and the feelings that we have about what we want to do and what we should do. Number three, sex is designed and properly enjoyed within the marriage bed of a man and woman. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let the marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Man, it's something that should be guarded. It should be guarded. One, as a husband, I should guard it to make sure I never want to bring another woman into it. I guard myself. I put parameters in place to where that bed is guarded. I never want to bring someone else in there. But I also pursue my spouse in such a way where they never want to bring someone else in there either. Man, it's to be guarded and protected, Scripture says. Believers are not meant to enjoy marriage and sex with an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6. Second Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be the sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And Scripture is real clear about uh, believers and unbelievers not being unequally yoked. You know how that happens? They date each other. Man, for our parents, listen well to this. Don't let your kids date an unbeliever because they're going to end up marrying an unbeliever right? Like that, that's how it happens. You don't just wake up and think, man, how did my kid end up marrying an unbeliever? They've been dating him for a long time. They've been dating him for a long time. My, my, one of my sister's best friends in high school, he would come over and he was, he was dating an unbeliever. And we were always trying to say, that's not good for you. That's not good for you. And, and he, you know, he kind of came from the perspective of, I'm going to win her to Jesus. And I remember my dad, like jokingly, like trying to hand him $5 bills on his way out. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you're a missionary. I'm supporting you. I'm going to give you my money because you're missionary dating. Basically, you're trying to, trying to win an unbeliever to Jesus through dating. And my dad's like, that's not smart. Like that doesn't work. Scripture says, don't be unequally yoked. And we take a strong stance on this here at this church. When, when someone becomes out from underneath their parents, like we haven't had to deal with this uh, within the parental situation, but outside, man, we, we lost somebody over this. When she began to, to seriously date an unbeliever and was working towards marriage, and we were like, this can't happen. Like this is against scripture, and we called her to repentance, and, and, it, and it finally got to the point where she's like, I'm not going to be here anymore because you guys are not in support of this. And she chose him, an unbeliever, over us. Scripture is very clear. This can't happen. It doesn't work. It's not part of God's plan. It's not part of God's design. Sexual immorality is any deviation from God's design by thought or by action. Matthew 5, 28 through 30, Jesus reinterprets, helps them to better understand what it really means to not commit adultery. He says, even if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in her heart or in your heart. It's something that originates in our heart. It's a heart issue. Sexual immorality flows from a heart issue. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that what goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus says it's a heart issue when this starts to flush itself out. 
Lastly, in our general guidelines to accept, sexual immorality is not to even be suggested as a possibility by us. We're doing something wrong if somebody can even suggest this as a possibility. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Some interpretations say there should not even be a hint of this among you. And I want to live my life in such a way that, that nobody could even bring false accusations against me and it have a leg to stand on. Like, I want to be so far from this that if somebody tried to accuse me, tried to lie about it and accuse me, everybody would immediately say, false, that's not true. That's not true. And not from the standpoint of, I would have never thought that person would have done that because we've all had that experience where where we find out a pastor friend, a deacon friend, an elder friend, or somebody has fallen into this and you're like, man, like I never would have thought that. Like, I want to get to the point in my life where I take such guard against this that if somebody even suggested it's like no no like like he lives so far above that that's that that can't that can't even be named amongst him i want that for you as well that you take steps in your life where we somebody suggests something about you and it's like nope that cannot be true that cannot be true because of the steps they've taken in their life all right let's jump into our outline recognize the danger of sexual immorality Recognize the danger of sexual immorality. First, the gospel picture is at stake when we choose sexual immorality. When we choose to deviate from God's design, we are putting the gospel picture at risk. Not the gospel, but the picture of the gospel, right? Like the gospel doesn't hang or fall upon our obedience in this area. But the picture that a lot of people see is at stake if we choose to deviate from God's design. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's describing two different people here, right? He's describing people that are involved in this type of activity and then people that are saved. People that are known for this type of behavior and then people that are saved, right? Like like they don't go hand in hand. And I've challenged people in our church before through accountability. If this is something that you are becoming known for, not something you struggle with, not something that, that you're fighting against, but something that you're becoming known for, man, burdens on you to prove your salvation there. Like, like, I'm losing reason from Scripture to call you a believer because this is not supposed to be true of you. You being labeled this way, right? Again, nobody's perfect until Jesus comes back. We are going to continue to fight sin, but we are being sanctified, right? We are being sanctified. We are being pushed towards holiness. And if these are things, so, so I, I've lied and I'm tempted to lie, but I hope none of you would label me as a liar from a characteristic standpoint. Yes, I'm a liar in the sense that I've told lies before. Yes, I'm a liar in the sense that I've, I've been born into sin and that I'm a work in progress until Jesus comes back. But I hope that none of you think of me as a liar. If you do, then, then we need to examine my life and potentially look at me stepping down, right? Because I, I should not be your pastor and be labeled as a liar. 
you cannot be a Christian and be labeled as a sexually immoral individual and think that, that that's not an issue. They just don't go hand in hand. Again, Christians can struggle with this, can fight against it, can be tempted towards it, but if it characterizes them, burden of proof falls on that individual to show why, why we should believe them to be a Christian because Scripture is, is, is showing a different picture. Sexual immorality is inconsistent with the message of the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this is the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He says all those things are contrary to the gospel. Living life that way, that's, that's different than living life according to the gospel. Number two, the glory of God through our life is at stake when we choose sexual immorality. Again, God's glory is not at stake, but your ability to bring him glory through your life is at stake when you choose sexual immorality. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Man, when we, when we involve ourselves in sexual immorality, we are abusing the body that Jesus purchased for himself on the cross. And we cannot bring glory to him while being involved in sexual immorality. It just doesn't go hand in hand, according to Paul. He says, your body is for God's glory. Use it in such a way where you bring him glory. The glory of God in our life is at stake when we choose this. Number three, our sanctification is at stake when we choose sexual immorality. Our sanctification is at stake. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will for your life. This is is a a step in your sanctification. It's to abstain from this type of behavior. Being able to control ourselves by the Holy Spirit is a sign of our salvation. If you look at Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21, it's when the Jews and the Gentiles are coming together as a church and there's a lot of confusion. Do we circumcise the Gentiles or do we not? What, what obligations do we place upon these people in regards to our Jewish culture? And you know what they came up with? They came up with a handful of things and one of them was abstain from sexual immorality. You people are coming from a, from a culture that's engulfed in it. Here's one thing that we need to clearly communicate to the Gentiles. We're not going to make you do circumcision, which was, uh, which was a benefit to all the adult men at that time, right? Like, you're not going to have to go through that. But you do have to give up your, your, your sexual behavior. 
right? Like, like here's how we understand it, not from the Jewish tradition, but from the creative design, it's for a husband and for a wife. And so we're going to clean up some of your theology, and here's one of the things that we're going to ask. Here's one of the things you need to do in your sanctification. Abstain from this type of behavior. That's Acts 15 and Acts 21. Galatians 5, verse 18. Man, I wish we had time to read all these fully. Um, it's a passage on being led by the Spirit and not walking in the flesh. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. One of those is sexual immorality. But if you're led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and it doesn't include that type of behavior, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. But that is not the way you learned Christ is what Paul says. We put off the old self, we put on the new self. That's Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4. We're called to live free from sexual immorality as we await the return of Jesus. Romans 13 tells us to avoid this type of behavior as we wait for Jesus to come back. It says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're called to put to death our tendencies towards sexual immorality. Man, we identify whatever it is that would lead us down this path and we kill it. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. First thing he mentions is sexual immorality. Do whatever it takes to kill this in your life. Get it out. Whatever temptations are, are being posed to you, man, get them out. Remove them. Fight against them. We're called to repent when we commit sexual immorality. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And that's one thing that I want to clarify here. We've all got something in our life that falls into this category. We all do. You may have been completely pure until marriage, and you may have remained pure all throughout your marriage, but all of us have fallen prey to this sin in some form or fashion through thought or through action. So all of us sit here guilty of this. All of us sit here with the privilege of being forgiven by a great God whose grace goes far greater than our sin could ever go, right? He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful to serve as an advocate for us when we confess our sins, okay? And when we commit this, when we fall into this, man, repentance is demanded. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. And that's Paul basically saying, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid I'm going to come and find you guys not doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you're not going to like the way that I act when I come and see that. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they have practiced. We read recently in Revelation 9 where the people failed to repent of their sexual immorality. Number four, our life is at stake when we choose sexual immorality. Our life is at stake. This passage is written to, to young men, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. 
and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Man, that's a strong warning, especially to the young men, to avoid a forbidden woman. Man, to avoid that type of relationship, to steer clear of it, because that, that, that path leads to death. That path leads to destruction. Um, one who is open to adultery with you is one who is extremely dangerous to you, according to this passage. God's judgment comes upon those who are sexually immoral. We won't take time to read this, but 1 Corinthians 10, Jude 7, Revelation 21, Revelation 22. Man, all those passages talk about God's judgment coming upon people who, who fit the bill for this. Man, like... Why is that important? Because one of my friends at Trinity is leaving his wife for another woman. And God says, man, burden of proof falls on you because my judgment comes upon this type of behavior. And that's not saying that he's not a Christian necessarily, but man, he is starting to move in the direction where scripture would tell us to treat him as an unbeliever, right? Because Matthew 18 says, when, when, you're, when a brother offends you, when a brother does something he's not supposed to be doing, you go try to rescue him. You try to draw him back to repentance. And when he says no, you send some more people. And when he says no to them, you send the church. And when he says no to them, what does it say? When you step back and treat that guy as an unbeliever because he's not repentant of that sin. And that's huge. That's huge. And if they're not a believer, they fall under this coming judgment that 1 Corinthians 10, Jude 7, and Revelation talks about. Sexually immoral people don't inherit God's kingdom, Ephesians 5, 5. I'm working up the nerve to to communicate with this guy the concerns that I have for him because he's, he's, he's working through this process and he's getting dangerously close to sealing the deal. And Ephesians 5, 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Can this sin be forgiven? Absolutely. Does Jesus' blood cover this? Absolutely. But man, we defame the blood of Jesus if we think we can claim Christ and participate in this long term, continue this in our life. I mean, this has been a, 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 a several month process, right? Like plenty of time to wake up and be like, I'm an idiot right? Like, I need to start doing what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Like, when you start looking at months of sinful behavior back to back to back to back to back, you got to look at it and say, man, we're failing to repent of a pretty serious issue here. The opportunity to always repent isn't guaranteed either. Remember Hebrews 12, 16 talks about Esau? It says that he, that he, that he, that he, that he cried tears, but they weren't tears of repentance. At that time, it expired for him. It also talks about sexual immorality in that passage in Hebrews 12. Number five, our church and friends are at stake when we choose sexual immorality. It's not just a decision that we get to make and live with. I mean, we're putting everybody in our life at stake for this. You know why? Because 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 says, and this is Paul, he is mad at the church at Corinth. Why? Because there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, and you're tolerating it, and you're letting it stay in your church. Revelation 2, go back to, go back to the church that's being talked to there. It says, this is what I have against you. You're, you're tolerating sexual immorality in your church. What does he go on to say? He says, kick it out. Get rid of it. They can't stay here and act that way. They can't live in this, call themselves a Christian, and be allowed to stay. Now, we can minister to them if they're saying, hey, I'm not a believer, like, I'm here trying to learn about Jesus. I don't know about the gospel. Um, I'm involved in some stuff, but 
I don't have a reason to give that up yet. And we're going to minister to those people. We're going to love those people. What we can't tolerate is people who say, I love Jesus. I love the gospel. And I love this other woman that's not my wife. We can't, we can't tolerate that. Why? Because that weakens all of us. Like if that's okay and we can show up every week and tolerate that, the next guy starts to say, oh, if that's, if that's okay, then I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to pursue that too. Right? It puts us at stake because you know what the hard conversations are? The ones where you have to, we have to address this with somebody. Right? Like everybody's kind of on pins and needles. What do we say to this person? Like how do, we, how do we address this person? And what do we tend to do? Not have those conversations. And now we're guilty too. We're guilty of tolerating it. Man, when we pursue sexual immorality, not only are we at stake, everybody else is at stake too because everybody else has a responsibility to, to, to do something about me when I make that choice. And it creates an opportunity for all these people to respond wrongly. It's not to be tolerated in our relationships with other Christians. What's it say in 1 Corinthians 5? You go on to read and it says, man, you're not even to associate with this person. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I'm not talking about the people of the world. I'm talking about those who named Christ and live this way. He says, you don't get to hang out with these people anymore. You don't get to call them friends anymore. You got to change your interaction with these people. When I choose to, to live this way, man, I'm, I'm forfeiting friendships potentially. And if I don't forfeit them, my friends are at fault for not forfeiting it, according to scripture, because they should be forfeiting friendship with me over this issue. They should love me enough to say, I can't interact with you the same way anymore. I, I'm hoping that by changing the way I interact, it'll draw you to repentance. It's not allowed to be tolerated in our relationships or within the church. Number two, so there's a lot of danger in making choices in this area. Number two, embrace the responsibility for sexual purity. Embrace the responsibility for sexual purity. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to see, number one, that in singleness, I must glorify God with my desire. In singleness, I must glorify God with my desire for a sexual relationship. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse six, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all of you were as myself, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. A couple of action points here for our singles. That's single adults. That's single youth. Embrace singleness if you are gifted uniquely with self-control. Like Paul says, this is a good gift, but it's a gift. Right? Like it's not a default. It's not... I've not met anybody, so I must be called to singleness. This is a desire check. This is a, do I want to be married? Do I want to commit my life to a single person for the rest of my life or to the rest of their life? Do I want the obligations of serving my spouse? Because Paul goes on to say, man, one of the joys of singleness is that you don't have a human being to take care of and to, to try to satisfy and to try to serve. You just get to put all that focus and attention on Jesus. So he says, if you can do it, man, be single. Remember several years ago, I taught on singleness 
and that it's something to embrace as long as God gives it to you. Even if you know you're not called to it forever, man, embrace the years of singleness and use them to the the furtherance of God's kingdom to the max because there's coming a day where you're gonna have a wife or a husband and kids and, and the calendar is going to shrink, right? With your time to be involved in certain things. As long as that calendar is wide open, man, pursue things that are related to Jesus and serve like crazy. Serve like crazy until you take that next step. And if possible, don't take the next step. And I've only encountered one or two people in my life that fit the bill for this. And I think it probably is rare because in our culture especially, it is becoming harder and harder to exercise self-control because it is so to the forefront of everything that we see and do. And all the protections you put in place as a parent does not protect your kid from getting it. It just doesn't. You can homeschool them. You can put them in a Christian school. You can lock down their phone. You cannot even give them a phone. And you know what? They're sitting next to somebody else with a phone that's completely unlocked. You can't go with them all the time. And they're sitting there next to unlocked phone guy. An unlocked phone guy says, hey, look what I found. And you, and you thought, how did this happen? Like, my kid doesn't even know what a cell phone is. Yeah, well, they're hanging out with somebody that has one, and their parents don't care as much as you do. And they're showing them things that you never thought they'd ever see. Or you give them a phone, and they've got all these lockdowns on it, and then some girl decides, you know what, the only way to get a guy's attention is to expose myself, and so I'm going to send a picture. I, I cringe every day when I get an email from a parent hoping that it's not another email talking about my kid has a picture that you've got to see. You've got to do something about this. I mean, it is becoming common, common. Our kids aren't having to go look for it from people they don't know. And it's circulating in our Christian schools. I know it's circulating in our public schools where they're just passing it around. All it takes is one person to send it, and then boom, it's just spread to everybody. And they don't care. It's hard to stay single, but Paul says, if you can do it, do it. If you can do it, do it. But the second action for the bulk of people that can't, it's pursue marriage as the appropriate means of enjoying it. And this applies to every single, right? Like, Luke, you're probably the youngest single in here that's listening right now. Or Juju, nope, you're older, you're younger than Juju, yeah. That's, that's a long ways away for Luke right now, right? Right, Ben? Like, like, like we're not, we're not, marriage is not on the radar right now, right? Like, I'm not sure dating is on the radar right now, right? And Luke may be saying girls aren't on the radar right now either. But you know what? There's coming a day where, where Luke's going to have to decide single or marriage, and it's probably going to be marriage. You know, the greatest thing that Ben can do for his son is to make sure that when the day does come where Luke is mature enough to get married, that he's ready to get married on that day, right? Because way too often we wait until we're mature enough and now it's like, oh no, what do I do now? I gotta figure out where I wanna go to school. What job do I wanna have? How am I gonna take care of a family? And now we spend the next five to eight years trying to get all that worked out. And now we're getting older and we've been battling these desires for years that honestly could have been pursued and satisfied at a much younger age, right? Right? So I know I've talked with Ben, like Ben's already working with his kids on money management, right? Like that's huge for a young man who's going who's gonna to be pursuing marriage one day and, and, and taking care of a family. There's all kinds of things we can do as parents to get our kids ready for marriage so that when they graduate high school, which is typically kind of how long you wait until you start thinking about marriage, that man, coming out of high school, 
if the right person comes along, we can go get married because I'm ready to get married. I know what I want to do with my life. I know how to handle money. I know how to take care of a family. We can do a lot of legwork leading up to that to help our kids fight against this because Paul says the way God's designed to take care of you and help you fight against this is to let you get married. Go get married and enjoy those desires the way that he's designed them to be enjoyed. God's provision, remember he says, no temptation takes you that I haven't also included a way of escape. What's the way of escape for this? Marriage. Now, marriage is a whole lot more than just this relationship, right? Like, let's don't minimize it and say this is the only reason we have it. It's a picture of the gospel, right? But it is the way that we escape sexual immorality. We get into a marriage and we enjoy it within the confines of that bed. And we do everything we can to get ready for it when it's time in our life to pursue it. Don't wait, don't delay. I'd encourage our youth, man, do everything you can to be ready to get married when the right person comes into your life. Number two, and we'll pick up here and, and wrap up. Number two, in marriage, I must glorify God with my opportunity for sex. I told you that the Corinthians were really confused about, should we, should we even be doing this anymore? Like, is this, this just evil across the board, right? And Paul says, no. No, this is, this is God-given, and it's right and it's good. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Man, God says if you're married, it needs to be a focal point to make sure that this relationship is maintained consistently. And that the only time it's not happening is because it's been an agreed upon thing for a specific purpose of prayer. And you're like, when, when is that? Like, when does that even happen? And why are we having that conversation, right? There's a couple of times in scripture where that happens. Like they're before Mount Sinai and God's about to communicate some stuff. And God's like, okay, break off all relationships for the couple of days because we're getting ready to talk to God and um, there was one other reference I, I read about, and I can't remember what it was. But, I mean, for the most part, that's probably not going to be a regular occurrence in your life where we say, hey, we have to stop this so we can pray, right? But far too often, far too often, busy schedules and other factors lead to a distance in this area. Paul says, man, that's a gateway to temptation. That's a gateway to temptation. I mean, the challenge is that both do the work necessary, and there's work necessary to have this happen, right? Like this isn't conjugal rights, meaning I just get this relationship anytime and every time because of the rights. Like there's work to be had to preserve this relationship. Paul says, work to make sure that happens because it's the way that we are protected in the marriage, okay? Number three, or the action, actively pursue it as a protection from sexual immorality, See, I don't even like to leave those words up there very long. Number three, in divorce, I must glorify God with my separation from this relationship, okay? And we're gonna, we're gonna rush through this and we're probably gonna come back to this at a later time because I think we all need to be educated on what God's word has to say about this topic again because a lot of us give counsel to people who are facing this. In divorce, I must glorify God in the way that I separate from this. Three passages I would encourage you to reference on your own. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7, which is where we're at right now. 
and it's not that confusing. Mankind confuses what God's word says about divorce because of his feelings and his emotions and him wanting to justify what he wants to do. It's really not unclear what God's word says about divorce and remarriage. It's pretty clear. We try to confuse it because we don't like what it says. And we try to make it cloudy when it's pretty clear. I mean, it's not confusing sections of Scripture. This, this stuff doesn't come from Revelation, right? Like, this is, this is from the clear passages of Scripture. There's some, there's some views that are out there. One, that divorce is permissible anytime. Two, that there's never a right for divorce. Three, that you can divorce sometimes but never get remarried. Or fourth, you can divorce and remarry sometimes. How does God view divorce? First of all, he hates it. Malachi 2.16. He hates it, but he permits it in Scripture. Due to the hardness of man's heart, he permits it. And I see two ways that he permits it. One, he permits it for sexual impurity. And two, he permits it when an unbelieving spouse wants out. He says that in 1 Corinthians. He says, man, if, if possible, one of you gets saved, the other one's not, stay together as long as that unbelieving spouse will have you. Win them to Jesus. That's when missionary marriage happens. Like you don't go looking for that. Sometimes you get stuck in that. Both of you were unbelievers. One of you heard the gospel. One of you got saved. Paul says, the right thing is not to leave that spouse. I mean, stay as long as they'll have you. And when they decide they want out, you can let them go. Don't try to obligate them to stay. You can let them go if they're an unbelieving spouse. He also permits it from the standpoint of sexual immorality. Your spouse commits sexual immorality which could be a, a whole host of things that maybe we'll come back to and talk because I think pornography can even fit into that. Okay, and that's a warning to all, especially all of our guys, and I know it's a guy-girl issue as a whole, but, I mean, it, it's permissible. I don't think it's God's desire. I don't think he wants that, but it's certainly allowed in cases like that where, where it just seems to be the, the best thing for the other party involved. And there's a lot of counsel and a lot of discussion that has to happen in that. It is permissible, though, I think, from Scripture. Um, but ultimately, it's destroying something that God creates. Matthew 19, 6, we said that um, what God has joined together, no man should separate. All right? Um, there's also caution given to us that if, if we mishandle a divorce, and we certainly mishandle the remarriage part, it can result in sexual immorality. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you mishandle divorce, it can result in that. Matthew 19, 8 through 9 um, talks about this as well. Romans 7, 2 through 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Unjustified divorce leads to adultery. The only possible grounds for divorce, and I want everybody in our church to hear this, the only way you'll receive my support in this is if it's over sexual immorality like nobody gets to come and say i'm just done with her i'm just done with him like i'm ready to move on i don't love her anymore i don't love him anymore like all the things that we hear for why somebody wants to step away and you're not going to get support from me or from any other elder in this church for that type it's just not part of god's plan 
and it can be forgiven, and it can be washed clean. And again, I told you up front, all of us have something in our past that if hasn't been repented of, needs to be repented of. So nobody's at fault or at worst here. I'm just telling you that scripture is very clear on this. Remarriage is only possible if divorce was based on biblical grounds, I think, according to scripture. You know what the, you know what the punishment in the Old Testament was for, for adultery? And then God said, because I'm a gracious God, I'm going to permit divorce when it's involving sexual immorality. But the, 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 but the real rule was death. You died for it. I talked about Matthew 18, that when someone's pursuing a divorce, we have a responsibility to go get them, call them back to it, call them to repentance. The action that I want to leave us with, and like I said, we're going to come back to this in a week or two because I want to make sure that we separate this from all the other discussion and maybe even have a Q&A time about this so that we're all clear on what God's word has to say about this because, again, so many of us oftentimes have to give counsel to people who are facing divorce. We want to make sure we give biblical counsel and that they're fully aware of what their actions mean moving forward, okay? Know what you believe about divorce for your own protection and your counsel towards others. Because here's the thing. You may just really be done with your spouse, but just know now that if you pursue marriage to someone else, that's sexual immorality. Even if the divorce is finalized before you ever do anything, God doesn't, God doesn't smile upon that. He's not okay with that. Application, and we're done. Number one, seek accountability in your struggles with sexual immorality. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 tells us we need others to spur us on to good works. We can't conquer this topic without help from others. That's why the church is so important. Number two, avoid triggers that make sexual purity more difficult. Avoid those things that make it harder to stay pure. Psalm 101.3 talks about not putting anything unwholesome before our eyes. Matthew 5.30 talks about cutting things out of our life that would cause us to sin. Romans 13.14 talks about making no provision for the flesh. Don't even give your flesh an opportunity to desire these things. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from it. Number three, immerse yourself in the word of God regularly. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 tells us that the, the path to purity is God's word. If we want to remain pure, how does a young man keep himself pure? By living according to God's word. Immerse yourself in the word of God regularly. Number four, remind yourself regularly of God's good promises to his children. Remember, the temptation to pursue sexual immorality is from Satan. And what he's wanting us to buy is that God doesn't have satisfaction and goodness intended for us. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's God extending his right hand, and it's full of pleasures. It's full of satisfaction. It is full of life that he wants to give to us. Psalm 84, 10 and 11. No good thing does God withhold from his people. Last quote to give you, the fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. The only way we find victory over sexual immorality is to immerse ourselves in the promises of God, that his way is the right way, it's the good way, it's the best way, it's how he created things to function. I was talking with our kids when I pulled them out earlier. God's word, God's word is for our good and God gives good things to his children. Question is, will we believe that? Will we believe that? Let's pray. Tyson's going to come. We're going to sing one, cl- one song to close. 
Father, I pray that as we come to the end of this, that you would cause all of us to pause and reflect on such a serious topic. God, that we would we would examine our own selves, recognize whether we may be uh, we may not be acting on anything, but you call even the thought process a sin, anything that deviates from your commands. So God, I pray that you would protect us, guard us from this, help us to take measures to cut it off in our life, to flee from it. God, I pray where repentance is needed, you'd call us to repent. God, I pray that because of today's sermon, marriages would be maintained because of potential things that were being contemplated. God, I pray that you'd draw us back to you. God, help us to see that the gospel is inconsistent with a lifestyle like this. It just doesn't work. For us to call ourselves believers, to call ourselves Christians, we are claiming to believe in your goodness. And to believe a lie, we've, we've, we've stepped away from that belief of goodness and, and belief in the gospel. And so, God, I pray that you draw us to repentance where we need it. God, protect our kids as they continue to grow up in the midst of this. We look back at the Corinth culture, and I'm sure that ours rivals it if it doesn't surpass it. God, protect our kids. Protect their eyes. Protect them from the choices that they make. God, I pray that all of them would take steps to prepare for marriage. I pray for our singles, God, that you would, you would bring that time of life to an end soon for those that are not called to it for life. God, I pray that you'd strengthen our marriages glorify yourself through through our actions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.